This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell. Hi and welcome to another edition of the Money and Markets podcast. I'm Danny Hewson and since we are slap bang in the middle of earnings season, we'll be assessing who the winners have been so far and how markets have been reacting. Joining me today is Tom Sieber from Shares Magazine. Hi Danny. Yeah, um, so UK markets have been fairly flat this week, but last week's numbers from the US banks pushed the FTSE 100 up to a post-pandemic high. Um, we've got UK banks in the spotlight next week, so we'll be discussing in a bit more detail what you can expect from their numbers. And banks, well, they're certainly going to be keeping an eye on interest rates. Speculation's been mounting that the Bank of England's about to push the rate rise button. But with the latest inflation numbers coming in cooler than had been anticipated, has the pressing need abated? Our head of investment analysis, Leith Kalaf, is with us. Hi, Leith. Yeah, hi Danny. Yeah, inflation a bit cooler than expected. Um, numbers don't include the petrol pump crisis or, or the most recent surge in, in energy prices. prices. Uh, but markets are still pricing in uh, an in imminent rise in interest rates, so we'll be taking a look at that as well. We're also going to throw ahead to next week's budget, what we know we know, what we think we know. Plus, Laura Souter's been chatting to Robin Powell about index investing. And Netflix has seen subscription numbers soar once again, largely thanks to the Squid Games phenomena. Um, and with Disney rearranging its theatrical schedule, we'll be digging into this high, highly competitive world of online of streaming. It is competitive, isn't it? Do you watch a lot of telly, Tom? Uh, yeah, quite a lot. Young kids, so don't get to go out a huge amount. And um, yeah, so that's that's our entertainment. And I find now that we've got an increasing number of streaming services and i think that i wonder whether that's becoming more common now is that you don't just have one um you have a few so (laughs) you can't just have one when you've got kids because you guarantee that one of them wants to watch something that's on one service and one of them wants to watch something on another uh laith are you a massive telly watcher um i don't watch as much television as i would like to be perfectly honest with you i just don't (laughs) seem to find the time but um but yeah i've got a load of streaming services so i'm paying a load of money for tv just not watching it (laughs) (laughs) have either of you seen squid games no i haven't yet no i do want to watch it yeah we are going to be talking a lot more about squid games a bit later on in this podcast um quite a bit to talk about and as we say tom company results really have been coming thick and fast on both sides of the atlantic Let's start with the bad, because lots of businesses have once again been warning about supply issues and how rising costs will impact profits. I'm thinking particularly about Procter & Gamble. Its share price took a tumble yesterday and dragged UK-listed Reckitt Bankheiser down with it. Despite beating expectations, it was very clear with investors that price pressures would have to be passed on to the consumer to a degree and that profits will be hit. Yeah, that's right. So, I mean, we'd already seen some of this come through, but it, it looks like it's from the announcement for Procter & Gamble, it's it's broadening in terms of the number of products which will be affected. Um, and I mean, the cost pressures are um, the same ones that I guess, you know, individuals are facing it. Energy costs are going up. Um, transport costs are going up. All, all of these things are starting to feed into the cost bases of these companies. Um, and the big question is to what extent they can pass these price increases on to their customers and kind of how, how rapidly they can do it. Because obviously these 
these costs are going up fast um and you know the ability to then pass those costs on to to customers as as rapidly is not necessarily always there so that's that's the kind of where the hit to profits come from um and the, the other thing to consider i suppose is that it's it's a bit of a test of their brand strength because if they rise raise prices too high will people just turn to unbranded alternatives you know it, it, it will will do you really need you know your crest toothpaste to pick out a Procter and Gamble product um if you can just get the you know the supermarket own um alternatives so if they start to see enough people doing that it becomes a bit of a longer term issue not just the sort of short-term issue of managing these inflationary pressures but a long-term issue for the big consumer goods firms um and the other thing to say is that obviously it's not just a question of cost pressures but it's also a question of shortages um and um philip morris has been affected by the kind of chip shortages that affected everything from the production of cars um and that that's hitting their um manufacturer of, of kind of next generation products of, of you know their, their kind of lower harm products um so it, it's not helping with that kind of transition for them um away from um you know harmful cigarettes that have a very bad reputation from an ESG point of view. Really interesting what you say about brands, because of course, I guess if if brand prices go up, then supermarket owned prices are probably going to go up too. And consumers, they'll pay a little bit more for the thing that they really want. And then maybe they'll decide that instead of buying branded everything, it's only sort of the top two must haves that they'll buy and everything else, they'll go a different route. Um, that was the bad. It, it's not all bad by any stretch of the imagination. And in fact, we had a really decent tech rally at the start of the week. But I want to go back to Friday because the FTSE 100 hit a post-pandemic high, largely in reaction to really good numbers from US banks. Yeah, that's right. So, I mean, there were a few things at play um, with the, the, I mean, you know, the key thing was they were better than expected, I think, um, the numbers from the US banks. And one was just that the US economy has obviously rebounded fairly strongly um, from COVID, notwithstanding all the you know the um, concerns about inflation that that we've been hearing and, and we've been talking about, and that clearly <clears throat> meant that they could release some of the provisions they've made for bad debts, um, and you know that had a that had a, a positive impact on on the numbers. But I think. Perhaps the biggest factor, and you know, these U.S. banks have huge, you know, investment banking um, operations. They're not just kind of lenders um, to to consumers. They 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 have massive investment banking operations, and the the big surge in kind of deal making activity um, means that they they've done very well from that point of view. There was some disappointment again in terms of commercial banking when it came to lending figures. Um, And I know the Federal Reserve latest data showed that loans as a percentage of total assets fell to a new low. And and that has been because perhaps of the uncertainty in consumers maybe not wanting to put themselves out there quite yet. Lots of talk still about COVID, about restrictions, particularly here in the UK. Um, but just in terms of interest rates, we're throwing ahead to UK banks now. And that's one of the things which they'll be looking at, Tom. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, obviously, the interest rates haven't gone up yet. But, you know, a key metric that people look at when they're 
they're considering the banks is the net interest margin, which essentially measures um, the amount of income a, a bank generates from you know the the loans and mortgages um, that they sell with the interest they pay out um, on deposits. And these this this metric for for pretty much all the banks. Um, has been depressed for a long time, reflecting the fact that interest rates are at a real low. Um, and we could all probably attest to the fact that when rates rise, it tends to be felt more readily by bank customers' increases in their in what they pay for their mortgage or the interest they pay on credit cards and loans than any uplift in you know the money they get um, or they earn on their savings. So if if and when rates do rise, that is something that that could well kind of boost banks' profitability um, and boot boost net interest margins. Um, I mean, other things that are likely to be in focus for the banks includes what what they might be doing with dividends, I guess, particularly now that they aren't restricted anymore. Um, so that that's another area that, that perhaps people will be looking at. Um, and I think HSBC kicked things off on, on the 25th of October. So that will be the first first big announcement from from the UK banks. Let's bring Laith in here now, because we were just talking about, you know, what, how banks uh, would react if there was an interest rate rise. Uh, we're only expecting a teeny tiny movement if one were to happen. Um, and now earlier in the week, this really looked pretty nailed on. We had Goldman Sachs and ING both bringing forward uh, their predictions, their forecasts. But then this morning, we're recording this uh, Wednesday lunchtime, we had the latest inflation numbers and they weren't quite what we were expecting, Laith. Yeah, well, there was, there was a bit of a drop off in uh, in inflation numbers. So last, last month, it was 3.2%. CPI went down to 3.1%. Um, probably a little bit, bit um, b- below expectations, um, but but I, I think we're probably just seeing a very distorted picture at the moment because last month's uh, numbers were for August, and we're comparing August 2021 with August 2020. And if you remember that far back, it was eat out to help out time. <laughs> oh, um, yeah. So that obviously depressed prices at the time because it was 50% discounts in loads of places. So that had a really distortive effect on the annual. Di- inflation numbers that's now dropped out of the equation so um so yeah inflation um dr- dropping back um it's still obviously above, above the bank of england target but i think what's really um got markets attention really is the rhetoric coming out from from, from the bank there was a um a global banking conference uh, uh, on on sunday Pro- probably no one here i certainly wasn't at it or listening to it i'm sure many of our listeners <laughs> probably weren't either but um it happened and andrew bailey was at that um conference and um, uh, he gave some pretty strong signals that the kind of in- interest rate rises are, are are in the wings, without obviously saying interest rate rises are in the wings, as central bankers tend to keep like to, to keep things very vague. So that's that's why we've had kind of markets um, really kind of reacting to that. Um, and you know the, the the chance of an interest rate rise this year has now gone up hugely. So I think um, you know. Um, I looked at this um, before the before the inflation numbers, so I'd expect this to, to be tempered a little bit. But we were looking at something like a ninety percent chance of an interest rate rise this year, and a sixty percent chance uh, in in November, which is the next meeting. Um, so markets are really are really thinking interest rate rises are are on the way. I, I'm I'm I'll probably say that it feels to me like they're getting a little bit ahead of themselves, um, particularly bearing in mind that the last time uh, the the interest rate committee met. Um, they unanimously voted to keep interest rates on hold. Um, so 
you know, a huge, you know, five of them would now have to change their mind, which is, is possible, I suppose. But also, we've got this kind of inflation number that's this that's come in a bit bit lower than than last month. And we've only just had the end of the furlough scheme, and things are still really kind of being distorted by the pandemic and the kind of low prices back then, the higher prices now. So we haven't really tested the theory that the bank had, which is that that you know inflation is 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 transitory. Um, because I know it seems like it's been going on for a while, but actually it's only been five months that inflation has been um, 2% or, or above. And it's sort of in that time been being between 2% and 3.2%. So that's not a, you know, a terribly large amount of, of inflation by historical standards. I know it can still be uncomfortable, particularly because a lot of it is coming through um, you know, household spending and, and also uh, um, um, petrol pumps. But you know, we're very far from you know, the double-digit inflation of, of the 70s, and it still very much remains to be seen whether we're, we're going to get anywhere anywhere near kind of double digits. So, you know, I suspect that there's, um, there'd have to be a lot more sort of, um, you know, a, a lot more kind of duration to the supply, supply crunch than is currently expected for that to happen. Now, if you weren't paying close attention to everything that Andrew Bailey was saying on Sunday, you certainly caught up Monday morning because his comments were, were in all the papers. And I know that the gas price increase is one of the, big issues that Andrew Bailey and certainly the whole Monetary Policy Committee will be taking a look at. And you can't get away from the fact that they've just gone up exponentially and we're seeing more companies fall. So although, yes, it's only been a few months, the impact on, on people's budgets is going to be huge. And and there is an argument, I guess, like, that if the bank doesn't get to grips with it at the outset, it could get away from them. Well, that is true. And I mean, that's the difficulty of being a central banker is that you've got to be a bit of a sort of soothsayer as well and, and kind of read what's in the tea leaves and what's coming down the road. Um, because actually, once you implement policy, it takes a long time for that actually to have an effect on market so so i mean there definitely is a threat of inflation we know it's rising you know we we know that there are kind of supply shortages supply chain problems um going on at the moment and certainly the the energy price rises are are extremely concerning um i think what the bank will be and or should be slightly wary of is it kind of engaging in a knee-jerk reaction um to prices because we don't know where prices are 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 going to go. I mean, it looks like they are going to uh, are going to stay elevated, and that's going to push inflation up. But let's also not forget that the bank already was expecting inflation to be above four percent this winter, and, and actually still to be at um, you know over three percent at the back end of next year. So it was expecting a rise in inflation, and that it said was consistent with an interest rate rise really at the back end of next year. So I guess. You know, there are definitely inflationary pressures. We can see them. The big question is, how long are they going to last? Um, and the other thing that's, that strikes me is that the kind of really dangerous, pernicious, pernicious inflation you got in the 70s really gets baked into consumer expectations and business expectations. And I don't think we're really getting to that point yet because people aren't going out and buying stuff now because they think, oh, kind of in a year's time, it's going to be 10% more expensive. I better buy that now, and which which kind of exacerbates the problem. The one the one possible exception to that is is the housing market. I think where people are doing that probably, but actually we haven't got to that stage where consumers and businesses have really got this kind of idea that inflation is entrenched and they need to actually bring 
consumption forward. And that's that's the point where things become extremely, extremely dangerous. So Leith, uh, we always like to get you in to read the tea leaves, not just when it comes to what the Bank of England may or may not do, but also what the Chancellor may or may not do. Uh, this time next week will be the budget and next week's podcast will be our budget special. We'll have a crack team on hand to dissect all the Chancellor's announcement, but some we already know about. We've got the hike in national insurance from April by one and a quarter percent. We know the pension triple lock's been scrapped this year, so the state pension will go up by 3.1%. We've already heard that an extra £500 million has been made available to people trying to get back into work. Now the furlough scheme's come to an end, but will there be any more giveaways? Does he have any money in the pot to enable him to have any more giveaways? Or will he have to look to claw money back? That's certainly what a lot of people are talking about. So potentially, where might we feel those stings, Leith? What do we know? Yeah, well, I mean, there's been a lot in in the press in the last last week or so, sort of budget policies. And I mean, to be honest, if he announces all of them, it's not going to be a budget day, it's going to be budget week, because he's going to be standing up for about 300 (laughs) hours. So uh, uh, we need to take some of them with a little bit of a pinch of salt, I think. Um, I I think the kind of broad picture um, is that um, there's going to be some good news, because actually compared to the March budget, um, if you, I mean, March, we were still in lockdown. We didn't know really where the vaccines were going to be really effective. And things have improved since then. Uh, and that's in terms of the economy and also the government finances compared to where the, the Office for Budget Responsibility expects them to be in March. So um, he's going to have a little bit of a windfall from the growth assumptions for the economy going in the right direction. So that's that's the good news. Um I think that the bad news is that there are some other costs that he's he's going to face. Um, one of them is that in the March budget, the government didn't make any uh, they didn't make any provision for ongoing um, um, COVID spending beyond the end of this year. So things like test and trace, um, um, boosters, um, you know, uh, clearing the NHS backlog, all that sort of thing is going to he's probably going to have to face the music on that, and that's going to be a bit of a drag um, on his finances. Um, and um, uh, the other thing is, as we were discussing interest rates, so the, the, the yield on government bonds has gone up a significant amount in the last two months because people are uh, expecting interest rate rises, and that's going to increase the cost of government borrowing. So when the OBR is also looking at how much it's going to cost the Chancellor to pay in terms of his interest bill for the borrowing, that's going to go up as well. So there's going to be some good news and, and some bad news in terms of the overall numbers. Um, I guess in terms of where the axe might fall, um, well, CGT, capital gains tax, is something um, that um, we know that they have been looking at. There's been a report um, saying that uh, from the Office for Tax Simplification saying that it should be re- uh, um, increased to, uh, to, to in line with the income tax rates and potentially the annual allowance cut back significantly as well. So that's, that's a possibility. I think the problem with that is it's probably quite difficult for a conservative chancellor to bring that that to the table and and also it could it could spark a fire sale of assets because the chancellor says well guess what cgt is going up in april what, what's everyone who's holding on to a property that's gone up loads going to do in the meantime so it, it might just be a bit destabilizing at the moment and the other thing that we've heard a lot, a lot about is potentially an online sales tax um, which might be coming in again we don't know if there's any kind of 
Um, you know, whether it's just a case of smoke without fire, this is something that's probably on the agenda for a while. But that also might be something that, that the Chancellor might, might have a look at. If you're looking to play some kind of budget bingo, you could maybe look at things like fuel duty, which has been frozen for 11 years. Um, obviously, the cost of a pint, will that go up? Council tax expected to rise. Lots of talk about a green gas levy. And we were expecting to hear that the national minimum wage would have been hiked during the Tory party conference. So potentially we could see that as well. Uh, Don't forget, um, the team will be here on Wednesday with your budget special. So make sure you subscribe or just hunt us out wherever you get your podcasts. Now, Laura's been speaking to Robin Powell, who is straight talking about the investment industry. He's a big fan of passive investing or index investing rather than paying a fund manager to do the job and is wary of a lot of the commentary out there about fund managers. But he's also just written a book called Invest Your Way to Financial Freedom, a simple guide to everything you need to know, which aims to get more young people into investing. So, Robin, you've just written a book called Invest Your Way to Financial Freedom, which is aimed at helping, um, I guess, all people, but particularly younger people, understand money and investing. So why is it, do you think, that younger people aren't engaging with money as much and and aren't investing their money? Well, I I think uh, the main problem is that uh, young people have a lot of other um, uh, distractions uh, and a a lot of other things to spend their money on. I mean, you know, in this country, we've always uh, emphasised, you know, the importance of getting on the housing ladder. uh, And and I think we're still very kind of housing obsessed, if you like, and, and it's still very much young people's ambition to 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 buy their first home, if you like. Um, but um, I, I would say actually that the most important thing to do is a to start saving and get about six months uh, worth of um, uh, income behind you. Um, and and once you've done that, once you've got that um, uh, kind of safety net, if you like, to start investing, because the sooner you start investing, the better. And so how did you get started with investing? How, what kind of age were you and how did you first get into it? I was actually very sensible, uh, pr- probably when I should have maybe been spending uh, m- more money enjoying myself. I, I was actually uh, squirreling quite a lot of uh, money into my uh, into my pension um, I, I too got on the housing ladder quite uh, quite early. I had uh, what in those days was called a, a pension linked mortgage, so I was actually um, putting quite a lot of money into my um, pension anyway. Um, uh, but um, I, I, uh, I to cut a very long story short, thought I knew a lot about investing, um, and then about ten years ago. Um, I was asked to make a, an online documentary about investing and, and actually realized that, frankly, I was pretty clueless. And I think that I, that is uh, the same. The same applies to a lot of people who actually you know, think they're pretty savvy about investing um, and they're not. And, and that was certainly the case with me. And so what kind of areas did you feel like you were clueless about? Were there particular areas that, that you think other people also might be falling down those same traps? 
We were approached by, um, when, when I say we, I, I uh, worked for many years in, in television, set up my own production company. We were approached by a wealth management firm who um, uh, uh, focused very much on, on index investing um, and asked me to make a documentary about, about index investing. And, and I must say I was very skeptical about it at first, largely because you know, in the media, and particularly in those days, a lot of the messaging around indexing was really quite negative. You know, it was the idea that, oh, it's a sort of second best kind of way of, of, of investing. If you really know what you're doing, you need to be investing with star managers like Anthony Bolton and Neil Woodford and, and, and people like that. Um, so um, I looked into uh, passive investing when around the world interviewing um, academics, Nobel uh, Prize winners, including uh, William Sharp, uh, Eugene Farmer, Harry Markowitz. Um, uh, I spoke to key people in the industry like Jack Bogle, David Booth at Dimensional. And I'll be honest, Laura, I was quite shocked, really. There is all this academic evidence out there about how people should be investing. And yet, the vast majority of people are doing pretty much the exact opposite of what they should be doing. And, and worse than that, they're actually positively encouraged by large swage of the swathes of the investing industry to do the wrong thing. And, and really, it was at that stage, 10 years ago, I decided, you know, this was going to be my life's work, if you like, for the rest of my career. I want to focus on this really important question of educating ordinary people about how investing actually works. And so I think probably you would agree from from the point that you started making that documentary to now, quite a lot of things have changed in the investment industry. And particularly, I think there's a lot more help out there for beginners and for newcomers to the industry. So do you think it's easier to start investing now as a novice investor than it was maybe 10, 15, 20 years ago? Well, I, I think there's a lot more help and there's a lot more hindrance as well. Um, yes, in many ways, it is much, much easier than it used to be to invest. I mean, if I wanted to start uh, uh, investing, you know, when I was in my sort of early 20s, uh, you know, I, I would actually uh, say, for example, I wanted to buy individual stocks. I'd actually need to actually go to a stockbroker to buy them. Um, and, and now you can actually buy all sorts of things with just a few uh, clicks uh, on, on your computer. Um, but that's not necessarily a good thing. And we've seen this massive advent of so-called free trading, if you like, in the last um, year or so. Um, and you know there is no such thing as, as, as free trading. These companies make their money out of you somehow. Um, and what worries me particularly is that um, people are actually being encouraged to trade in things uh, which are actually far riskier than they imagine. I mean, I'm talking about things like uh, cryptocurrencies, for example, uh, like derivatives. Um, and also, you know, as, as you know, Laura, I'm sure you, know, you educate your um, uh, clients about this. You know, if you're just trading individual stocks and so on outside of a of a pension, you you are not getting the the 
huge tax advantages actually of of of, of investing in a pension that you get uh, in in the UK. I mean, um, the, the the government is actually you know uh, quite generous with 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 taxpayers' money in terms of you know helping people to 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 invest in a pension. And if you're just kind of trading individual stocks or Bitcoin or Ethereum or something. You are not getting the advantage of that at all. And in fact, if you do win big, then you potentially face a large tax bill, uh, which which makes no sense at all. And so that's a lot for new investors to kind of figure out all of those things. So it's understandable that people are going to kind of make mistakes, I guess, as they go along the way, like we do with with lots of things in life. But what do you think the the biggest money mistakes people are are making right now, whether it's in investing or um, kind of elsewhere with their finances? I I think the biggest mistake people are making is, is, is not getting started. You know, the, 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 the miracle of compounding means that the sooner young people start investing, the sooner they start benefiting from compounding. Um, and, you know, if you can see the huge difference that, that compounding makes to your eventual returns, there is um, you know, a very, very clear case for starting as, 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 soon, as, as soon as possible. Um, another mistake people make is they don't invest enough. Uh, they're, they're not putting enough away each month, and this is something we um, stress in the book, and we uh, go into you know how much people should be uh, putting away. Um, they're overconfident. They they read an article uh, in the newspaper or online, uh, or they see their friends investing in something and making a lot of money out of it, and they do the same, and they think they can you know make a killing, and almost invariably they they don't. Um, and I suppose they they, um, they they try to make it far more complicated than it needs to be. Um, you know, w- Warren Buffett has um, come up with some brilliant um, uh, sort of one-liners, if you like, for young investors uh, o- over the over the years. And I really encourage your uh, listeners to 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 read what Buffett has to say about investing. And and one of my favourites is you know that. You don't need to do extraordinary things to achieve extraordinary results. You know, you pick up any investment magazine or the you know, money pages of a, of a weekend paper, and there'll be all sorts of ideas about investing in, I don't know, India or with a particular fund or to get into a particular um, uh, sector like uh, green energy or whatever it is, whereas what people really need to be doing, they need to be buying a simple, plain vanilla, boring, low-cost index tracker, a global index tracker that gives them exposure to the whole global stock market. That is by far the most sensible way to invest. But the problem is there aren't enough people there with the incentive and, in some cases, the, the integrity, if you like, to actually tell young people what they really should be doing. And so did you make any of those mistakes when you were starting out? What was kind of the biggest money mistake that that you made? Or maybe even more recently, I guess everyone's learning as they still go along, aren't they? My, my, my biggest money mistake, frankly, uh, Laura, was that I uh, read the financial pages and I believed what, what was in them. Um, and, and, you know, the financial pages... I'm not like journalism as you know it. I mean, I'm I'm a journalist like like you, 
Uh, and, you know, for me, journalism is all about the truth and getting facts across and being accurate. What we see in the financial pages is really essentially marketing. It's not there for your benefit. It is there for the advertiser's benefit. Um, and to an extent as well, it's there to, 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 to help that publication sell copies. Um, and I spent many years uh, kind of reading uh, the sort of money sections of, of, of Sunday papers and so on, uh, taking the advice in there and losing money as a result. And that was the biggest mistake that I made. That's so interesting. I know that some people definitely wouldn't agree with that view, but I think perfectly valid to have it. Um, thank you so much, Robin, for, for joining us. I really appreciate it. All right. Well, thank you very much for having me. Um, and yeah, the, the, the book is called Invest Your Way to Financial Freedom. You can get it from Harriman House, the publisher, or direct from Amazon. Thank you. Robin Powell chatting to Laura Souter. Uh, Tom Sieber and Laith Kalaf are still with us because it is time to talk streaming. Um, we know that you both like television, Laith. You don't get to watch as much of it as you like. But I'm interested, uh, how many streaming services do you pay for, Tom? Uh, I should know this. Uh, I should have it at my fingertips. Probably, I think... At the moment, four, because we're paying for Now TV, because there's a few things we want to watch on on there. So, yeah, quite a few. How about you, Laith? Uh, is Amazon a streaming service? I mean, that's it is. So, yeah. Yes. So, okay, well, I'll count that one as well. Then. It's three, then. I terribly, four. Yes, definitely four. <laughs> <laughs> it, there were substantially more than that, but a couple of the ones that the kids wanted over lockdown, I've, I've just managed to get rid of. But it, it's amazing when you start to sort of add up how much money you're paying for these things. And mm. there is a huge amount of competition at the moment, and particularly as people really start to have to think hard about their budgets. It'll be interesting to see how many subscriptions too many. Um, content very much has been the driver of getting eyeballs onto those subscription services. And Disney did seem to be winning the battle because it had a huge back catalogue. It was able to pull in films that had been due out at cinemas um, at a time when Netflix's new content had got a bit hung up because of COVID shutdowns. And Netflix subscriber growth numbers had seriously slowed down. But no more, Tom. And that's down to a little series called Squid Games. Yeah, absolutely. So in a in what you know you've rightly said is a very competitive streaming space, the company does seem to have this knack of kind of finding these little diamonds in the rough, if you like. And um who would have thought that such a sort of relatively obscure foreign language um series would become such an international sensation and you know, one that has contributed to to a kind of a rebound in growth in subscriber numbers. Um I mean, the company is is investing heavily in its own content to, I guess, in a way to build on these subscriber wins. Um, I mean, one thing I guess is that it's it is unpredictable how these new sh shows will sort of perform and and will they actually resonate with audiences? And um, that's from the point of view, from an investment point of view, that that is that is perhaps a bit of a black mark against Netflix is that you you can't judge ahead of time necessarily if if something is going to be a success um, and because you know investing in this content is expensive 
they might be generating a lot more revenue from subscriptions, but is that really flowing through to profit and cash flow? Because, you know, a lot of that money is then just going straight back in, recycled straight back into to paying for new content. Um, the, the company did do an interesting deal. I don't know if you saw it when it, it bought the rights to the kind of Roald Dahl canon. Um, yeah. Like. And that that was interesting because it, it there's sort of extra potential to that, really. You know, they, they've talked about expanding into live theatre, doing merchandising. And obviously, you know, it's um, a hugely popular series of books, you know, that, that Dahl wrote. And there is scope to produce new movies, new shows off the back of that. So um, in a way, that that's kind of similar to, to what Disney has with, you know, Star Wars and, and Marvel and, and the kind of universes that it, it owns. Um, as you said, Disney, less of a happy time this week than Netflix, really, because it's having to delay... I mean, in some respects, the same production issues that Netflix have faced, uh, meaning a delay to some of the, the, their big titles, including the latest instalment in the Indiana Jones saga. So um, it's uh, it's competitive and, and sort of fast moving, the streaming space. What was interesting for me about what Disney said was when it reconfirmed its commitment to having its films out on a theatrical release in cinemas for 45 days before it put it onto a streaming service, because I know that it was experimenting with that, obviously, during lockdowns when restrictions were in place. It never gave any figures for how films like Black Widow performed. This seems to suggest not so brilliantly which is quite interesting because, of course, Netflix is is still fairly new when it comes to the film space. I was listening to their investor um, conference this morning. They were saying, you know, just sort of three years, really, they've been looking at this, although they've had some pretty decent acclaim there. But I guess, you know, the, the big question for all these streaming giants is, is how much is too much to pay for the content or or do you just have to keep paying, Tom? Yeah, exactly. And I guess the what you know we were talking about price increases, you know, in other areas. Will they increase their prices? I, whilst we were saying, you know, it, it does add up when you've got several um, streaming services at once. You know, what Netflix is is perhaps around ten pounds a month for its its standard subscription. Would people perhaps pay? three four five pounds more than that you know and and be quite happy to do so and i guess that's something they may have to test in the future if if they want to keep investing so heavily in content and this christmas could be really interesting i suppose that the big question that all these streaming services are going to be looking at is whether or not people will be prepared to pay for streaming because they're going to spend the money on staying in to save money or whether because they couldn't go out last year that this Christmas is all about the socialising, um, obviously it, depending on on whether we see any new restrictions anywhere around the world. Um, thank you both very much for uh, joining us today. Uh, Laith and Tom, I believe, will both be back for our budget special. Till then, thanks for listening. Before you go, please remember this podcast is for educational purposes and the views expressed don't necessarily reflect those of AJ Bell or Shares Magazine. The podcast isn't telling you whether certain investments are suitable or not. And don't forget that the value of investments can change and you can lose money as well as make it. It's also important to remember that tax rules apply and that the way an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future. If you want help, go see a qualified financial advisor. 